4,000 Words is funded by the generosity of the patrons of Infinite Hermit Productions. If you'd like to contribute and get access to works in progress, complete stories, exclusive podcasts and Parapod movie, pictures, updates and rarities, please visit patreon.com forward slash Ian Bullsworth or visit ianbullsworth.co.uk for more details. Trevor. I am thunderstruck, madam. Trevor spoke everything too loud. He would sneer, side on, at anyone who approached him. This ensured he largely remained a solitary fixture at the end of the bar. It was not unusual for the uninformed to hastily vacate the area upon his arrival, leaving him a snarling satellite of spittle consumed by a foppish character that nobody could recall the credibility of. If it was ever once an affectation, it had been concreted as permanent for a long while now. Do you hear? Thunderstruck, Trevor continued. To have one's sobriety questioned with such sarcastic solemnity by a mere serving wench, I am thunderstruck. Jane opened her mouth to reply. And gold, Trevor announced, after a moment's theatrical pondering. Thunderstruck and gold, a non-desirous duo at any time of the day. In any other establishment, the commotion would have raised eyebrows, but so accustomed to Trevor's displays were the inhabitants of the coach house that any interest was lost to experience. Only Jane remained confounded, her still open mouth momentarily speechless. Trevor, for his part, recognised this as the optimum moment to nudge his pint jar dismissively across the bar top toward her. There was no need for further admonishment. A stern nod and swift aversion of his eyes in disgust would seal the deal. His lame left arm had fallen down, and he reached with his right to pull it back onto the bar, straightening his back in superiority as he did so. Jane continued her search for words, but came up short. She hated Trevor. He was the worst part of a shitty job, and she mentally swore an oath to never fill his stupid pint jar again. The pint jar was the least of her issues with him, but the fact this abusive mockery of a man also kept his own jar at the coach house was the icing on a vile cake. A stupid tankard, bold, showy and delusional, as if he couldn't be more of a prick. She jumped as Trevor struck the bar with his fist reverberating wine glasses above, clinking a toast to his outburst. Fiery damnation, wench, he growled, bulbous eyes glaring at the glass. Fill it! A few of the soaks allowed themselves a glance toward the bar, but everybody already knew the story of Trevor. It was the first one told to new customers and staff arrivals alike, and none of them ever expected the turn it was going to take. There were the laughed warnings about his Malvolian speech, the heads up that he would address the girls as wench and bark his drink requests. Sometimes a stutter would rear its faltering head, prolonging the irritancy, but come the explanation of his arm. The smiles would fade. Facts were vague, and nobody had ever had the nerve to ask Trevor himself for clarification. 
but it was generally agreed that this friendless man was once part of a family with two working arms, a wife and a daughter. He was some sort of big deal business owner with his wife the long-suffering dependable rock. Unbearable as it must have been for the poor woman and insufferable as he surely would have been as a father, from all accounts he was furnished with love and stability and would have been able to juggle had the mood taken him. One evening, Trevor's volatile temper surfaced during a night drive. A row ensued, with his wife in the passenger seat, as his young daughter slept in the back, none of them knowing she'd never wake. At some point in the argument, Trevor lost control of the vehicle and wiped out his entire family, burdening himself with a permanent disability as a cursed reminder of his blame. Every time he snapped in the pub, every time he shouted, and particularly every time he lifted that limp arm back onto the bar, any in his presence could think of nothing but this man's dead wife in that passenger seat and his infant daughter being flung through the front car window before Trevor's rage had even registered it. For all his cursing and eccentricity, it was this reason, and this reason alone, that Jane knew that tankard would not be refilled. This wasn't the first time he'd been barred. As he limped along the high street, with the echo of his booming curse on both the coach house and all its staff and patrons still ringing fresh in his ears, Trevor hadn't the first notion what the others were thinking. With infinite guesses, he would have never arrived at the conclusion that their dislike of him was in any way connected to a car accident and resultant familicide. He wouldn't have necessarily arrived at the notion that they disliked him at all. They were plebs and beneath him, possessing no part of the cognitive capacity to accommodate judgments of any superior. His misery came from elsewhere. They could not impact on him in that way. He thrust his good arm forward and strolled assertively along the pavement. Yet he continued to scowl. The sun was in his eyes, and his own squinting irritated him. The sun had no business glaring so inconveniently on a November day, but he would have been equally disgruntled had the sun been absent. The rain would have bothered him, or the wind would have been too robust. Snow would have been an absolute outrage. On a daily basis, Trevor would be angry with the weather as if somebody had planned it. He inwardly cursed before deciding to vocalise it at an empty bench. Shitting damnation! The bench stared silently back with barely concealed nonchalance. After a momentary contemptuous stare, Trevor decided that this one wasn't worth the effort and moved across the road towards the Irish pub. The paddies would prove a more worthwhile opposition to slay with his rapier wit. The high street split into two at the triangular traffic island he now stood on and he looked back to the coach house, standing proudly at the intersection of the one-way system, dividing the split road. The serving wedge should feel my belt on any other morning, he thought to himself. To stand with surly affront when my goal shines as bright as the purse of any other, he grimaced whilst turning back to the crossing, mentally noting to make no attempt at re-entry for a few days. As always, this exclusion wouldn't last. By Thursday, he'd be able to regain access at the busiest time of day, camouflaged amongst the insufferable suits that swarm the space at noon. He'd target the most unfamiliar member of bar staff. The staff turnover was regular. By the time the nectar was in his glass, it'd be too late to reinstate his unjust ban. After an intolerable and unsuccessful wait for the green crossing light, Trevor strolled across to the market side of the high street, 
Pausing briefly to yell buffoon at a gaudy yellow hatchback that attempted to intersect his jaywalking, he revisited his oft-pondered conclusion that a walking stick may prove helpful for so much more than walking in such situations. The open stalled market was interminably busy with peasants, and his favoured politeness of pardon I was very quickly replaced with move at the ignorant and indifferent backs confronting him their owners hypnotised to immobility by the tawdry tat adorning the stalls. He sighed loudly as he moved, sprinkling insults at the obstacles in his path. His only pleasure came with benign behemoth, a new alliteration that he would note for further future use, tempered only by the fact that the benign behemoth in question would be oblivious to what either word meant. Likewise, when he announced bondage before liberty, at a particularly unappealing cue of the great unwashed, the enjoyment of appropriating Milton's assessment of cultural decay had to be taken with the caveat that not a soul on the high street would realise the character assassination they'd just experienced. He arrived at the crossing before O'Neill's, a new sanctuary only a matter of feet away. But an animated discussion at the final stall tugged at his attention, an urgency in the words he overheard. A dispute. I was looking at the other stuff, a young voice pleaded. You weren't looking at the other stuff, you were stealing it, came an older one. Trevor turned away from the crossing and moved toward the stall. A lurid collage of oils and candles, incongruously lumped in with a kaleidoscopic collection of soft drinks. One such bottle of chemicals was in the hand of a young girl, anywhere between ten and sixteen. Trevor had given up trying to decipher ages in the local youth. She was punctuating her protestations by waving the bottle around. I don't need to nick it, I can afford a bottle of pop. I was looking at those oil burner things, then I was going to come back and pay. Well pay me now then. Then you can go and look at the oil burners. I don't even want it now, the girl said quickly. I'm not going to buy it off you if you say I'm nicking stuff, am I? There was a desperation in her voice. The desperation to escape. Trevor smiled, enjoying the drama. After his own confrontation with the serving wench at the coach house, the desire to see this event play out, one that he was not a part of, was delicious. You've already opened it, so pay for it or I'm keeping you here for the police. I've not opened it. There's always a gap at the top. It's a rip-off. The girl thrust the bottle back towards the stallholder, who was standing with arms folded and her round face reddening in frustration. That, the stallholder said in calm fury, has been opened and you were stealing it. You've been caught. Now give me the money. I haven't got any money, the girl barked. You've just said you can afford a bottle of pop. The stallholder retorted, smugly. The girl stopped and thought. She'd been caught in the theft, and now she'd been caught in the lie. The smile on Trevor's lips had broadened to a grin. He would watch this play out with interest, intrigued by the potential longevity of the deceit. How long could the juvenile bandit hold out? It was truly all over bar the shouting, but the shouting would be worth his audience. He enjoyed the discomfort, and the opportunity to watch and wait for fight or flight. He was naturally all in on the stallholder. She clearly held the aces, and the looming destruction of the young ragamuffin's impudence would be cathartic. Let her squirm. These adolescent mobs had the run of the town these days, 
swarming in packs of misery, defacing property and disrespecting elders with a fixed insolence. When a stray was apprehended and disarmed, it was to be savoured. Perhaps he would interject momentarily and rebut the arrogance of youth with his strength of experience, a united front of solidarity with the stallholder. Rarely did one get to witness thievery end with a satisfactory conclusion. He thought of his stein held hostage in the coach house and the way the Philistines there would refer to it as a jar. If he wasn't allowed back in there and they were holding his property, that was theft in its purest form. He had been a victim of theft only 20 minutes previously. When he was younger, he'd once awoken to find his Triumph Spitfire with a wing mirror hanging forlornly. There wasn't a clip for another vehicle. It was on the pavement side and clearly intentionally vandalised. That car had been reflective of his progress, a true symbol of his status, yet more importantly, a tangible example of the work he'd endured and flourished within. He'd called his father, who listened calmly to the news, before eventually instructing Trevor to go out and find someone to hit. There'd be no chance of finding the specific perpetrator, so he must take to the streets and find somebody that would commit such an act, and they could take the blow. Trevor had never done this, but had committed to the notion for the rest of his life. It was just and fair that a cad pay for caddish behaviour. They were guilty of the attitude and warranted the treatment, regardless of their involvement. The discomfort of the young rapscallion before him would elicit no pity. Mina's head was spinning. She'd tried three times now to just place the bottle back onto the stall top and the longer the row went on, the more inclined she was to keep picking it back up again. Why did she keep picking it back up? It was there in her hands again and all it would take would be to put it down and walk away. If she could resist the urge to run, there was less likelihood of there being a bigger scene and others getting involved. That way, should this fat bitch grab hold of her, all the unaware would see was an adult assaulting a child. She could turn on the tears, somebody would take her side, if she could just manage to not pick the bottle up again. It had been dumb to open the cap and take a drink before she was clear away, but she'd started to believe the charade that she was undertaking. When she'd gotten to the oil burners, so committed was she to the act, that she'd actually started to believe she was doing nothing wrong. She'd believed the bottle was hers, and she was going to pay for it. Rather than waiting for the stall holder to be distracted by another customer and slipping away, she'd opened the bottle and sipped from it. That same bottle that appeared to be glued to her hand right now, the one causing all this commotion with the incriminating low liquid level. She wanted it away, wanted to go about her day, to go secrete herself in the corner of the car park where she'd sit with a pack of cigs on days like this when she decided against school. The cigarettes were the reason she'd had to acquire the pot by other means. Not as easy to lift a pack of darts from behind a counter as it was to palm away a bottle of coke from a stall. In theory, that is. The bottle was now far from discreet, acting like a homing beacon for every curious meddler on the street to come watch the drama unfold. She'd yet to look around, focusing all her attention on the snarky stall holder, but she could feel the eyes on her, and it was making her talk louder. If she could maintain the volume whilst protesting her innocence, surely the situation would break. She was relying on the embarrassment of her accuser, to get to a point where it simply wasn't worth the effort and attention. 
but with the audience she could feel behind her, it was going to be a grand effort to not crack first. What? she shouted at the storeholder, but the storeholder simply stared back, tight-lipped and eyebrows raised. What are you looking at me like that for? What? Her voice had cracked and taken her by surprise. The tactical decision to raise her voice had backfired. She hadn't taken into account that she was prone when acting emotional to actually get emotional. It had happened without her realising and she stood staring back, her defiance undermined by the fact that she was now shaking. She could feel the bottle in her hand unbalancing with her shudder and bit down on her lip to disguise the tremble. The heat on her face told her she was blushing and her eyes blinked from side to side in a desperate attempt to distract from her embarrassment. Excuse I, came a pompous voice from behind her. It had only been a matter of time before one of these gloating pricks butted in, despite this being none of their business. This is what she dealt with all the time. People sticking their noses in, people judging and interfering. She wanted to be left alone. That was all she ever wanted and nobody would do it. Nobody would get on with their own business and leave her to hers. She didn't have to take this shit. She span around. Teary, angry eyes glaring, ready to snarl at whoever had chipped into her business. She was expecting a crowd, rather than one man, but everyone else on the high street appeared indifferent. A cloud of people floating by. Only the man was casting his undivided attention in her direction, and his smirk lasted until she spoke. Have I got a fucking tree on my head? She spat, as his gloating expression snapped to one of shock. Trevor held pride in his ability to remain unflappable at his core. His outbursts and declarations were on his terms, a willing choice to splash into abrasiveness. He was methodical in his madness, and could just as easily have charmed his way into staying at the coach house with a contrite bow, a courteously displayed gesture of regret. It was an option available to him, and his options were everything. It was a rarely speculated opinion of Trevor that he knew what he was doing, rather more than he was simply out of control. Whilst this may have once been true, it was not the case now. When he shouted, he was making the choice to shout, not beholden to some impossible impulse, he chose to unleash his vitriol. It was considered and meticulous, which made his reaction to the scowling rapscallion facing him as much a shock to him as it was to her. He felt his stomach tip, and his face drop. Do you want to move along and butt out? Mina said at him. But he just stood with his mouth open, and his eyes widening with incomprehension. The stallholder placed a hand on Mina's shoulder, who immediately tried to shrug it off defiantly. Don't touch me, she shouted. Don't touch her, Trevor said quietly. Mina paused and looked back at him, confused. The bustling high street suddenly feeling very quiet. Trevor blinked and cleared his throat. This... this malady is clearly bequeathed from some form of simple misunderstanding. It was now the turn of Mina and the stallholder to be agog, the tableau of citizens' arrests seeming incongruous with their shared reaction. Unhand her, Trevor demanded, before softening. I'll provide the necessary recompense for the disputed beverage plus additional bounty to secure the girl's immediate release. Trevor walked over to the stall, placing a ten-pound note on the surface and tilting his head at the stall holder, who instinctively took a hand away from Mina's shoulder. 
My grace, for your pardon, madam. Trevor bowed, almost imperceptibly. Child, you're free. Trevor limped away from the stall towards O'Neill's, attempting as he did to disguise the urge for calm pounding through him. Not wishing her own confusion to hinder her escape, Mina had looked down at the bottle in her hand and then back up to the stallholder. The girl's smug insolence was as unconvincing as the stallholder's return to normality, and neither won the prize with such uncertain parting glares. Mina hurried away to follow Trevor. I wasn't stealing it, Mina said as she caught up. The thievery was assured. You'd do well to be aware that just a century ago you'd have swung for such criminality on this very street, Trevor said, avoiding her eyes. On your way! Mina continued to walk beside him, frowning to herself. The only sound between them, the laboured breathing from Trevor's uncharacteristic hurrying. Mina broke first. I don't know what you're on about. It's like Shakespeare speaking. Is that how you actually talk? Trevor stopped and turned. Parting with bail for your freedom was not an invitation of company. What? asked Mina, continuing to frown as she pulled the cigarettes from her pocket. Depart! ordered Trevor. Why are you talking like that? You should be clearer. Mina began to open the cigarette box. Here's clarity, said Trevor, deftly taking the box from her hands before she'd had a chance to dodge. These are my demands for aiding your unfounded getaway. Give, Mina said still shocked at his niftiness in taking them from her. Mine, stated Trevor. Property of myself, no longer yours. Do I speak clearly now? You're a dick, Mina muttered, walking backwards slowly away from him. Thanks for your help. Oh, I mean, thanks for your help, so you could rob my cigs. Very nice, really very nice. And further clarification for you, Trevor said, speaking louder at her laboured exit. Today is Tuesday, a school day. Removing your necktie is far from an adequate disguise. You shouldn't be in possession of these, Trevor held up the pack. And you should be in educational attendance. My aid was dependent on future conduct. I do not wish to see you loitering these pathways betwixt school hours again. You have experienced a rare escape. Do you understand? Mina squinted her eyes at Trevor. Mental, she said. You're off your head. She turned and slipped back into the moving pedestrian bustle. Mina, shouted Trevor. Do you understand? A solitary middle finger raised above the heads of the shoppers and she was gone. Trevor moved on towards O'Neill's, opening the cigarette packet as he did. It had been a long time since he had felt the snap of pulling out the inner foil, and his dead arm prevented the experience now from holding true accuracy. His wife had hated him smoking, one of the very few disappointments she'd ever expressed to him. Before his stroke, that is. His memory was vague of immediately afterwards. Just snapshots of her frustrations. He remembered tears, but mainly his own. He remembered cursing himself, the confusion, the new stutter making reasoning impossible as he tried to beg her. He had never seen her like that. It appeared such a fast turnaround, but it couldn't have been. The initial years when he'd moved to this area, he'd dwelled and stewed, fleeting positivity surrounded by a shroud of self-pity and resentment. He thought of her shutting the door every day, until the exactness of his memory could no longer be trusted. He remembered their daughter in her arms, tearful as the gap between the doorframe closed for the final time. He'd known he'd become unbearable, 
but was powerless to revert. As the years went by, he settled into his present incarnation, embracing his curt persona whilst attempting to make it palatable with language and personality for those in his knowing firing line. Occasionally, like today, the situation would get out of hand, but he felt confident that the swines knew he wasn't a villain. They'd perhaps sense his sadness, a perfectly understandable reason to never approach. He'd be the same himself. He understood their pity, but regretted that none of them felt able to express it. Just a solitary time. On certain days of weakness, he'd imagine his wife now. He'd never allow himself to think of their daughter, even when his head demanded it. He emptied the contents of the cigarette pack into a street bin and turned the empty box over in his hand, his thumb closing the lid before stroking the front of the pack. He carefully placed it into his pocket and opened the door to O'Neill's. Wench! he shouted at the bar as the door closed behind him. Four Thousand Words is an Infinite Hermit production, written and read by Ian Bowlesworth. The music was by Thomas Funderay. Four Thousand Words is funded by the generosity of the patrons of Infinite Hermit Productions. If you'd like to contribute and get access to works in progress, complete stories, exclusive podcasts and Parapod movie, pictures, updates and rarities, please visit patreon.com forward slash Ian Bowlesworth or visit ianbowlesworth.co.uk for more details.